Hello, I'm Rabbi Avi Green. And I'm Dr. Akiva Daum. And, and welcome, welcome to Interesting, Interesting Questions. I am a rabbi with ordination from Yeshiva University and a doctorate in education. I have a medical degree with specialization in general and addiction psychiatry. In this podcast, we will seek to take different questions that come up in the Torah and evaluate them from a psychological standpoint as well as a religious standpoint. Please note that in many of these situations, we will be looking at things that may be viewed as controversial. It is specifically to bring about questions that many people have had and bring in to light different levels of evaluation and it'll get people to think about things in a different way. Welcome to Parsha's Kitavo this week, as we get even closer to the end of the Torah. So Akiva, at the beginning of the Parsha, it talks about how B'nai Israel is split into two groups. And one goes up on Har Grizim, and the other one goes up on Har Eval, and the Levim stand in the middle, and the... Uh, and, and they call out the blessings and the curses, and everybody answers Amen. And it strikes me that there may not have been a specific need to go up on these two mountains and be on one side and be on the other side, um, but it did remind me about how much we like balance and how much we like when things are the same on each side. Right? One of the measures of attractiveness is symmetry. is symmetry. And so I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about balance uh, and symmetry in our lives. So, you know, Avi, it's, we, we all talk about we like balance and symmetry, and I think aesthetically we do, because you just said it. Symmetry looks pretty. The fact is, is that unfortunately... Uh, we oftentimes are not people who, and I don't mean us people, I mean all people, we don't really have a good understanding of balance. right? When we think about that pendulum swinging back and forth and back and forth, it very much is something that doesn't seem to fall in the middle. And so even when we have six over here on this mountain, and six over here on this mountain. We think about that as, oh, six and six, that's a balance. The scale is even. And yet, if we look, the blessings, wonderful blessings, the curses, pretty extreme curses. And so even that in and of itself, it's a balance in that one extreme offsets the other. And unfortunately, I think that's what we find all too often in our lives, that we have a series of extremes. And, you know, when I was, when the beginning of COVID started and some of the patients that I began working with were people who were actually affected by that lack of ability to balance their extremes. You know, we had people who would work extremely hard and then would rest extremely hard. But now, some of them couldn't work as hard because there wasn't as much hard work to do. Or they couldn't rest in the same way because they couldn't see people the way that they wanted to see people. So they had this unbalanced life. 
And I think that what is most beneficial is if people can find a balance, if we can figure out more how to walk that middle road, we may find that we are generally more balanced, more symmetrical. It's, it's a difficult thing to achieve. And certainly in our own lives, right, many of us do have a very difficult time right we have to <clears throat> to to live a from life it's not cheap you have to work very hard you have to make a good amount of money to live this this from life and yet at the same time so much of our time is devoted to helping others and doing what we can to assist and and help people achieve so again two extremes both important but clearly not a balance which leaves many of us Exhausted, to say the least. So, Akiva, would you say balance is an average or we should aim for balance at all times? And to clarify that question, in other words, you talked about the people who worked very hard part of the time and rested very hard part of the time. Or you talked about people who, um, versus, let's say, on, and on the other side is somebody who says, no, I'm going to do my eight hours of work, I'm going to get my eight hours of sleep, and my other eight hours are used for a balance of family time and personal needs and running errands and the other things I need. In other words, should, is, is this about on average for my life, on average for my week, on average for my day? Or is this each day I should try and find balance in everything that I do? I think that's a wonderful question, Avi, and I appreciate the follow-up. Because right, I think that ultimately... I believe that those who can have a true middle ground balanced in everything they do, who can have what we call, funny enough, a work-life balance, are able to be the most even-keeled, the most healthy from a mental health standpoint and physical health standpoint, quite frankly. Um, so I do think that that should be the goal. Now, is that always achievable? No. And is it always practical? No, it's a great goal. And I think that to be able to work towards that with the understanding that sometimes we have to, to use a medical word, triage our efforts more in this area or more in that area to meet a goal is certainly within the realm of normal. Uh, but I would argue that if, generally speaking, we have more of a healthy balance in our lives we have more bandwidth to be able to tolerate those extremes if we need to. So Avi, when the, when it, the Torah is talking about the building of Aaron, uh, not Aaron, uh, the building of altars, it says specifically that you should not use iron. And, okay, so I, I get that iron was used for weapons, and we don't want to associate an altar with weaponry. At the same time, we also know that iron is used for chisels and knives, and, for example, knives used for shrita, which is then eventually you would use the animal's hide, potentially, to write a Sifre Torah. Now, when I'm thinking about writing a Sifre Torah, 
on hide that was cut from an animal. It's with a knife. It's with iron. So can you explain a little bit why it is that an altar should not be erected with stones that were cut by iron, and yet we can write a Sifrei Torah with, uh, with uh, the use of iron to get the hide off the animal? So I'm going to make an educated guess because I don't have a definitive answer. But to me, it strikes me that here it specifically talks about not building the Mizbeach with any iron tools. And part of that is, yes, that iron is definitely connected with the idea of weaponry. Um, And so no weapons should be used, or or items connected to weaponry should be used to create the Mizbeach. Whereas we would use a knife and, and other things in order to be able to shech the animal in order to cut the hide off the animal, etc. And so the, the best <coughs> suggestion I can make is that it's connected to the kedusha, the holiness, of the item. There is a certain point when something becomes kadosh, when something becomes holy. In this case, the mizbeach at its inception is holy. As soon as you begin taking the raw materials, which are the rocks, and putting it together for the purpose of creating a mizbeach, then it reaches a very high level of holiness. Alternatively, when you shecht an animal, the primary purpose could be for meat. The primary purpose could be to create parchment that is used for business or for other things. It isn't until you actually begin writing the Sefer Torah on the hide of the animal that that, that, that parchment becomes kadosh in the way a Sefer Torah becomes kadosh. And some might even say it doesn't fully reach that status until it is all sewn together and you have an entire Sefer Torah. Otherwise, you just have panels. Um, oftentimes, the way that a, a sofer will write is they don't attach everything at first. They work on it in panels, right? We, we know there's a seam, and then they sew those seams together, and that creates the Sefer Torah. Um, and so I want to suggest that it is connected to the level of Kedusha. And so when something starts off as holy, like the Mizbeach does, or like other parts of the Mishkan, then there really needed to be specific directions and specific limitations from the outset. Whereas when something had multiple possible uses, it wasn't kadosh until such time as it was designated as such. And we still see things like that today. So for instance, if you brought in a table to use for Torah reading, until the Torah reading actually happens on it, that table is just a table, and you can eat on it, and you can uh, put other things down on top of it. But once it becomes your your regular Torah reading table, it becomes a shulchan, then it reaches a level of kedusha, and we have different expectations of what we can do with it once it wears out, and what else we can put on top of it even as it's being used. But Avi, what else do you use a shechita knife for? People could use shechita knives for all sorts of things. Um, they could use it to cut open boxes. They could use it to, to, to do all sorts of things with. In other words, 
just because it is used for shechita doesn't mean it wasn't used for other things. In the old days, there weren't a lot of knives. We have drawers full of knives. In those days, I think there were many fewer. And so they talk about, you know, chunks being out, being, you know, being cut out of the knife almost so it looks serrated uh, in the Gemara. And they talk about how much you had to polish the knife, right? And, and uh, sharpen the knife in order to make it usable again. And so my guess is they used it for many things, not just for shechita. What about when it's for a korban? So again, I'm not clear how much they might have used the shechita knives for other things in the Beit HaMikdash. That probably was less so, because they probably had multiple shechita knives. Um, and that would have been the primary function of them. But I don't know if they would have used them for other things. They might have used it to cut up the animal after it was brought as a carbon, right? And that can 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 do some damage to the knife as well. We'd love any comments where anybody who might be more into metalworking might know if there was any other kind of implement that could have been used that would have been more appropriate if it wasn't iron, uh, perhaps copper. I don't know. So, Avi, in this Parsha, we, again, are reminded of what happens if we don't follow Hashem's commandments. And I suppose part of my question to you is, this is a series of multiple times now that we have been warned and cautioned and told. And I'm not talking about throughout the Torah. I'm talking about in Devarim alone. This is a number of times that we have been reminded. And yet this particular Parsha has such a specific amount to it with, its, with not only its, its blessings, but also the curses of what will happen if we don't. So much so that we don't even call somebody up for the Aliyah. Balkara usually just goes and, and does the Aliyah and then just goes into it and does it as quietly and as quickly as possible. I suppose part of my question is, is why, why are we hearing this so many different times? Because it's again and again and again. And why now? Is it so much more specific? And why is our response to hide from the warning? It's a warning in the Torah of don't do this or this terrible things will happen and you don't have to use your imagination anymore. Here's how bad it is. Why would we want to rush through that? Don't we want to know why it is so important, not just because of the good, but also to avoid the very real bad that is laid out for us here? So you're correct that this, this part of the Torah is read quietly, it's read quickly by the Baal Kore, <clears throat> without anybody being called up to a specific aliyah. Now part of that has to do with the superstitious concern that those things might befall that specific person. In addition, looking at your larger question of don't we, why does this happen? I think you, you know, why, why are we told so many times? 
I think that you answered your own question to a certain extent. This is, these are warnings, right? These are warnings of what's going to happen if you don't do what Hashem has commanded you to do. In addition, it is, this is really the last time we're going to hear them from Moshe. This is the end of Moshe's speech. And so this is, this is the most specific and the most dire. Um, and I think he's really trying to hammer home to them um, the importance of doing, doing right and doing the mitzvot. And one of the questions that arises is, well, does he really think that they'll mess up? And I think certainly if anybody is a, a student of history, they know the truth is yes, right? That's what, when we go on and, and read the Navi, we see it. And when we uh, explore Jewish history, or any history almost for that matter, we see this is the case. Every nation, even when it's at its peak and doing its best, right, eventually declines and, and has negative moments. And some of them climb back out of that, and some of them never do. And so, the, to me, the next natural question that we may need to discuss is, where are we currently on that roller coaster or on that, you know, up and down scale of, are we as a Jewish people, are we as a nation on a, on a climb up or are we on a decline? Um, and, and is there a way to adjust that either individually or as a people? So I would postulate that at least in this case, the Torah seems to give us a very, two very extreme views. And going back to our discussion of balance, we're somewhere in the middle at the moment. Right? There are things I can point to that are better than they've ever been. There are more people learning Torah in institutions of Torah learning than there has been any other time in Jewish history. Right? There, is, there are more people learning things like Dafyomi and Parshat Shavua. The internet has proliferated the ability to study and learn by offering resources and by offering systems and by putting it out there and, and giving people communities in which they can learn and grow. And I think there are many communities where growth is encouraged and supported. At the same time, I think that there are pieces we could point to in the Jewish world and in the world as a whole where things are not the ideal. Right? We talk about looking at sinat chinam, needless hatred, that came at the end of uh, this is part of the theme of Tisha B'Av and part of the theme of the three weeks. Um, and we saw a lot of that in the world as a whole, but even among Jewry. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a lot of articles about shuls that post-COVID have breakaways and have people who are not 
it's not that they're not ready to return, it's that they're not willing to return. And it isn't for health reasons or health concerns, it's, it was more comfortable, it was more comfortable either to daven by myself at home, or it was more comfortable to be with my little chevra of people, my little group, um, and we liked what we did, and, and we're going to start our own thing and do our own thing. And I wonder how much of that leads us down the wrong path. Not that every shul or every group has to be, you know, unified in mind and thought and deed, but at the very least that things should be done with respect, with forethought, um, and not simply out of convenience or uh, basic desire. But I'll throw it back at you, Akiva. What do you think? Where are we as a society, as individuals, as a Jewish community? Well, you know, Avi, I think I can say with relative confidence, we are not currently eating the flesh of our wombs. But aside from that, I think we're towards the bottom. I, I think that we're towards the bottom when it comes to how we treat each other. And I think it's towards the bottom with how we treat ourselves. And how, unfortunately, many of us treat our relationship with Hashem. I think that all of those, not surprisingly, are intertwined. I think if we don't know how to treat ourselves, then we can't possibly know how to treat others. Conversely, I would say that I work with a lot of amazing people who know without question how to treat another human being. And yet the way they treat themselves, the way they speak to themselves, the way they speak about themselves, they would never say that to another living creature. And so those two, of course, are extremely united. We need to know how better to treat each other. We need to know how to better treat ourselves. And whether it's that, you know, as, as Jews, we believe in a Kaddosh Baruch Hu, um, but, but taking a step back from just a religious standpoint, the idea that you can have a relationship with something else that has a higher power than you is extremely valuable. I know that, you know, obviously you and I are biased. We have a clear, strong relationship with Hashem, and hopefully it's reciprocated. I, we do the best we can, I know. Um, but it, there's solace in that. There's, there's comfort. There's, there's importance in that. And, you know, it's... it's not lost on me that, and we had, we had looked at this at the end, right, of this Parsha, we, we have Moshe's declaration to the people that you were in a place, you were in the wilderness, your clothes did not wear, your shoes did not wear, you grew, everything grew with you, and he says, you didn't have bread, you didn't have wine, and you, you were explaining to me earlier that basically this is, the, this is the statement of you know what happened. You were clear thought. You had a clear head. You had awareness of what was going on around you. 
And I think that idea, that idea that we can, with a clear mind, say that there is a God that has care for us and has a, wants a relationship with us, if only we want to have a relationship with God. There's such power behind that. It means you're not alone. It means that even when you feel you are alone and nobody else understands, there's clearly an omniscient, omnipotent being that understands. Maybe not in the clearest way that we can fathom it, but we have this concept. And why do we have this concept? Well, you and I believe that because God gave us this ability to have this concept. And so I think in general... I don't want this to be a message of just sad and, and hopelessness. I think that if we can all learn how to have a better relationship with a higher power, specifically for some of us, obviously, Akadosh Baruch Hu is who I'm talking about, um, if we can learn how to have a better relationship with ourselves and a better relationship with each other, I do think that all of that combined is what can bring us hopefully at least towards more of the middle, if not towards the more blessed side. So continuing along this same line, uh, which I will point out follows beautifully with it being the month of Elul, our question for this week's Shabbos table is, last week we talked about what we can do to remove Amalek from our lives. And this week, we have the understanding of how important it is to have a relationship with Hashem and follow the mitzvot. So my question for the Shabbos table is, what can you do to increase that? How can you improve your relationship with Hashem? What's one thing in the month of Elul that you would like to bring throughout the next year. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach us at iqdiscuss at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and responding.